I invite you to turn with me in the Scriptures to 2 Chronicles 20, page 471, 471 in the Pew Bible. We'll continue the preaching on the Lord's work in the kingship of Jehoshaphat, and we'll read the first 30 verses. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, En Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court, and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. 
Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. On the fourth day they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of that place has been called the Valley of Barakah to this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord, and the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. And that's as far as we'll go this morning. In response to the preaching, we'll sing from Psalm 91, the stanzas 3, 4, and 5 about the protection the Lord provides for His people. <clears throat> Holy and loved Church of God in our Lord Jesus Christ, we saw last time that Jehoshaphat had learned his lesson. He learned his lesson from both the failed alliance with King Ahab, as well as that rebuke from the prophet Jehu that he had received on his return. Jehoshaphat had repented from his sin. He had turned his heart again fully to the Lord, and he showed that by going out among the people and urging them to repent too, because they had slid away in the meantime. So the king became a preacher of the gospel. And he did more. He appointed judges all throughout the land of Judah so that the law of the Lord might be upheld, 
that true justice would flourish among God's people. So by the time we get to the end of chapter 19, everything is looking pretty good. The kingdom is back on track. God's word is being taught widely. Faith and obedience are being urged among the people of God. And King Jehoshaphat is acting like a true godly shepherd king. So there would be a sense of joy and peace in the land. And then all of a sudden, the king hears that there's a gigantic army at En Gedi. That's only 25 miles from Jerusalem. They have come and they are ready to attack. Where'd that come from? They got there fast. This is out of the blue for Jehoshaphat. And instantly the king is afraid and all Israel with him, for they know that in that huge army is sure doom for them. And as we read this, all kinds of questions come to our minds, like why would God allow this? Why would God allow a massive army to develop as a threat right inside the land at En Gedi? I mean, is this latent punishment for Jehoshaphat's earlier sin? We know God controls all things, and we've seen earlier in Chronicles that He certainly can and does send armies, enemy armies, to punish His disobedient people. So is that what's happening here? And why then, when the people are actually turning their hearts back to the Lord, why would the Lord put them into this highly precarious and highly dangerous situation? Why at that moment? Well, it is to work in their hearts and our hearts an even greater trust and greater confidence that their salvation is only in the Lord. So I bring you this word of our God, do not be afraid, for the battle belongs to the Lord. That'll be our theme. Do not be afraid, for the battle belongs to the Lord. We'll take a look at the overwhelming battle and then at our overwhelming God. It's very clear from our text that Jehoshaphat feels utterly helpless in the face of this army. Verse 3 tells us that he was afraid and he proclaimed a fast throughout all Israel. And in that fast, he goes to the Lord in prayer. He cries out for help and desperation to God. And when you think about it, it's a little bit surprising that he feels so desperate because in chapter 17, we learned that's earlier in Jehoshaphat's reign, we're actually told that he had a very, very big army himself. You might remember that, chapter 17, he has over a million soldiers, we're told. That's the largest army in the history of Judah to date. Now, it's true that between chapter 17 and 20, there had been a battle fought and lost at Ramoth-Gilead, and Jehoshaphat and his men participated in that battle. But it's hard to believe that in that single battle, he would have lost a million soldiers. He must still have had a sizable fighting force at his disposal, 
which only tells us that the forces coming up against him at En Gedi must be incredibly large and incredibly powerful to make King Jehoshaphat so afraid. I mean, he doesn't even contemplate trying to take them on. So, this is no ordinary attack. It was an alliance of three kingdoms, a massive military incursion, and all these three kingdoms come from the other side of the Dead Sea, on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, eastern side of the Jordan River. Now, we might be more familiar in the course of the history of the Bible with attacks from enemies from other directions. We, we are familiar with the Philistines who come from the west and what today we'd call the Gaza Strip. We're familiar with the Egyptians who would attack from the south. We also are familiar with the Syrians who would attack from the north or even Assyria from the northeast. So this grouping is maybe a little less known to us, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites. Edomites are sometimes called uh, dwellers of Mount Seir, and they're also called the Munites here in chapter 20, just different names for the same people. And there's no doubt there was a, a massive amount of them. They're called in verse 2 a great multitude. In verse 12, they are described as a great horde. And Jehoshaphat says, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming up against us. So everything about this triple army was utterly overwhelming to Jehoshaphat and his people, and he was afraid. He was very afraid. And I wonder if we can relate to that feeling of fear. I don't suppose many of us have been confronted by powerful armies, but some of us have had police officers take us away to prison or chase us out of the country. Threats, fears can come in many, many forms, and it doesn't take much to cause us to feel shaken and overwhelmed when certain people or certain situations mount up against us, and all we're trying to do is serve the Lord Jesus like Jehoshaphat and his people were. That's all they were trying to do, right? They were just trying to get back on track Previously, they had been unfaithful, but the Lord had brought them to repentance. They were working on renewal and building up a better life that was, that was more faithful to their covenant God. And just as improvements are being made, suddenly they get hit by the greatest military threat they've ever experienced. It's a threat to their existence. They know this invading army could literally wipe them out overnight. And isn't that how it sometimes goes with us too? When we have repented from a sinful path and in the strength of the Lord we, we get back on track or we're trying to get back on track, isn't it right then and there as we make a few steps forward that the devil comes in and attacks us with his great might? That's what's going on here. The devil is involved, no doubt about it. The ancient serpent Satan is using these three nations to attack the seed of the woman, Judah, and particularly Jehoshaphat, from whose line that Messiah was promised to come long ago. 
the idea from the devil's side is pretty simple. Destroy Judah, kill off King Jehoshaphat and his royal family, and the promise of the Messiah could never come true. These three nations are long-standing enemies of Israel, as we know from the books of Moses, uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy in particular. Ironically, they're all blood relatives of Israel. Sometimes our biggest enemies are the ones closest to home, aren't they? Who are the Ammonites? Well, the Ammonites and the the Moabites were actually brother nations. They come from two brothers, or two, yeah, they come from two brothers who were descended from Lot, and you know Lot was Abraham's nephew. In fact, Lot owed his life to Abraham's intervention. And the Edomites, they were descendants of Esau, which was brother, who was brother to Jacob. And so they were cousins to the Israelites. And all three of these nations hated Israel without any reason. As we read from Deuteronomy 2, the Lord had specifically commanded Israel to avoid going through their territory. And if they had to go through, they had to pay for their food and their water. They were not allowed to take over any of Edom's land. They were not allowed to take over any of the Moabites or the Ammonites' land because God had given those nations that land. And God said, don't touch. And Israel obeyed the Lord. This, in fact, is what Jehoshaphat brings to the Lord in his prayer in verse 10 and 11. Jehoshaphat knows his history. And you recall that all the kings of Judah were to have a a copy of God's law that's likely the book of Deuteronomy. They had to keep it on their person. They had to read it and meditate on it. So Jehoshaphat knows his history. And he knew that Israel had only in its past respected Edom, Moab, and, and Ammon, had only treated them with kindness. And now says King Jehoshaphat, verse 11, these nations, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, Lord. He's pleading with the Lord, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We do not know what to do. But our eyes are on you. That is the response of faith, isn't it? This is trust in a circumstance where there's no evidence that things are going to change. It's the response of someone who knows that his cause, his fight, his battle is supported by God. Actually, it's even more as the prophet says in response, verse 15 of our text. It's it's the words of someone who knows that the battle is not yours, but God's. It's actually not your battle, Jehoshaphat. This is the Lord's fight. That's what the prophet says. And we have to start with that too. We have to start with figuring that out for ourselves when we have battles in our lives. Is the battle we're facing truly God's battle? Just because an enemy is attacking us of itself, that doesn't mean God is with us. Earlier in 2 Chronicles 12, we read of how 
Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Rehoboam as punishment from God. At that time, Rehoboam had not been serving the Lord. And so God gave him over to Shishak. You can also think back to earlier in history when the Israelites were at the entrance to the land of Canaan the first time, and they defied God's command to return back to the desert. And the Israelites said, no, we're going to go in and attack uh, the the Canaanites, and the Lord will be with us. Only the Lord was not with them. They lost that battle because that battle was not the Lord's battle. So, brothers and sisters, when you face opposition, attack, you need to first examine yourself and you need to examine the situation. Is this the Lord's battle? In other words, is my heart being true to the Lord in all this that's going on? Am I living in faithfulness to Him, in obedience to His commandments, or is it my pride that's acting here? Is this actually my personal fight in which I'm telling myself God is on my side? Because that's easy to do. We all want to have God on our side, but the question is, is God on our side? It's not whether we think He is, but is He? And the answer to that is, by, is to examine our lives. Am I harboring sin in my life? because then God is not with us in the battle. We could put it another way. Am I being attacked because I faithfully serve the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is the Lord actually against me in this fight because I have been unfaithful to Him? And if it's the latter, then we need, what we need to do is repent in humility of heart But if it's the former, then we may follow Jehoshaphat and the Lord Jesus Himself and throw ourselves upon the promises of the Lord. Our eyes look to You, Lord. We don't know what to do, but we look to You. The Lord Jesus did that in His earthly ministry. He faced many enemies, didn't He? And all the enemies that came against Jesus had no just cause to do so. Those were undeserved enemies. Jesus had no pride in Him. Jesus had no self-serving nature. All He ever did was faithfully serve the Father by coming to serve the people. And yet, certain people rose up against Him and hated Him. They became His enemies without just cause. They slandered Him. They insulted Him. And eventually they arrested Him falsely, charged Him, beat Him, tortured Him, and crucified Him. And yet for all that, as Peter writes in his first letter, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When Jesus suffered, he did not threaten in return, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. My eyes are on you, Lord. He entrusted his cause to the Father as judge because he knew, Jesus knew, that his cause was the Father's cause and that in time the judge would rise up in his defense, would restore justice, and would put down all his enemies. My eyes are on you. 
And that's the path for us to follow. If our cause is truly a righteous cause, if our battle is truly God's battle, no matter how overwhelming the opposition may seem to us, our God will fight our fight, and He will utterly overwhelm His enemies in the end. Jehoshaphat, filled as he is with the Spirit of Christ, leads the way in this crisis by example. Verse 3, Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord. The king was afraid, but he wasn't paralyzed. He was filled with fear, but he did something with his fear. He took his fear to the Lord, like David did in Psalm 35, which we sang, Lord, strive with those who strive with me. And that has to be our next step in this spiritual battle. If we are sure that we ourselves are acting in faithfulness to God, then we may take our fears to the Lord. And because this particular situation was a national emergency, Jehoshaphat calls for a fast throughout the land. He calls for a time of prayer, and he calls for a holy assembly at Jerusalem. Everybody in the land, all the people were to devote themselves to calling upon their covenant God for help. They were to lean on the Lord together. And that's really one of the purposes of fasting, which is mentioned here. Sometimes people ask about fasting. Fasting, of course, is going without food for a number of days in a row. People ask, well, what is its purpose? And sometimes wonder whether we should be fasting today as Christians. Should we do that? Well, when you look through Scripture, fasting could have several purposes. It could be used to express grief over one's sin or grief over someone who died, who was close to you, or, as in this case, grief in a crisis situation. At other times, people would fast to prepare for a specific ministry. Think of Moses fasting 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai, Jesus fasting 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, and when you stand back and, and look at all the kinds of fasting in the Scriptures, what is common to all of these is a posture of humility. Humility. Fasting always was coupled together with prayer. So you can say that going without food for, uh, for a time, that was a way for a child of God to visibly show to God it wasn't designed to be something you show to others necessarily. It was designed to show to God what you were verbally expressing to God in prayer. Namely, Lord, I am nothing without you. I depend on you completely, Father, for everything. That was the sentiment of the fast. That was the idea of the prayer in those days. And there would be nothing against Christians doing something like that even today. God doesn't command it of us. 
but he doesn't forbid it either, and it may well be beneficial at times. For the more we are convinced that we have no power in ourselves, but that all power rests with our God, the more we lean on the Lord, well, brothers and sisters, the better it is for us. And Jehoshaphat here, too, adds prayer to fasting. And I invite you to look at what he says in his prayer beginning in verse 6. He goes to the Lord and he talks to the Lord there at the temple. And I want you to notice the manner in which he talks to the Lord. He speaks in the style, you could say, of many of the psalmists. Here he is fearful and there's this huge calamity at his doorstep and he needs the Lord's help. What does he do? He comes to the Lord and he lays out the case for why God should act. Verse 6, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? He's reasoning with God. You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? He's reasoning with God, like you might reason with a, a friend. And these reasons are at the same time also praises. Lord, you are the ruler of the nations. You are the judge of the earth. It was you who gave us this very land in covenant to your friend Abraham. And Jehoshaphat goes on in verse 9 to mention that God had promised to hear the prayers of his people offered here at his temple, 2 Chronicles 7. And the grand finale of reasons in verses 10 and 11, these people, O God, are violating your will by trying to disinherit us from the land you gave us, O Lord. Lord, you won't let that happen, will you? None of the reasoning here is self-centered. It's all on the Lord. Lord, this is what you've done for us. This is who you are. This is what you've given to us. These people are violating your promises. They're going against your will. Are you going to let that happen, Lord? And that's a model for us this kind of reasoning with God in prayer. Maybe, maybe you've tried it before. If not, it's good to consider doing. Why is it good? Because it shows that we take God's Word seriously when we reason with Him on the basis of what He's promised. And God loves it when we do that. Takes Him and His Word seriously. And doing so also helps to strengthen our own faith because we remind ourselves of what the Lord our God has committed to us. So, beloved, when, when you're in a time of trouble, think of the promises that you and I have received from the Lord and then work uh, to pray those promises back to the Lord. Reason with your, your God. Always respectfully, of course, but like Jehoshaphat, for example, you could say, Father, are you not the almighty and all-loving God who gave His Son for my life? You're that God, right? Did you not promise 
to use whatever suffering or evil you allow in my life. Didn't you promise to turn that around for my good? Lord, show me that good now. All I experience presently is grief and pain, but exercise your power, exercise your love, and let me experience also your goodness. Father, you promised it. You promised. Or say you're facing temptation. A certain sin is calling you powerfully. You could pray to the Lord, O oh Lord, you have sent your Holy Spirit to live inside of me, and you promised to cleanse me from my sins. But my sins are mounting a powerful attack against me, O oh God, right now. I'm in the moment. I am being tempted left, right, and center. But Father, your word says that you are mightier than any of my sins. You are more powerful than any of my temptations. So please, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, keep me from falling into this sin. Keep me from the grip of this sin and help me overcome the attraction of this temptation. powerful reasoning with the Lord. That's what He wants us to do. This is humble faith in action. And that kind of faith will never be disappointed for the battle does belong to the Lord. Every battle that we are in as faithful children of our Father is God's battle and He'll fight it if we lean on Him. That's the clear message of the prophet Jehaziel, one of the Levites, and that connects with what God had promised in Deuteronomy 20, that the priest would pronounce uh, to Israel ahead of battle not to be afraid. Twice Jehaziel says here, do not be afraid. Maybe you know that's one of the most repeated commands in all the Bible. I read the other day that it's repeated 365 times in the the writer said that's almost, or that is, one for every day of the year. Do not be afraid. God knows we are easily afraid. But when we take our fears to the Lord in faith, He instantly works to quiet them down. Don't be afraid. And then He gives us His reasons. Through Jehaziel, the battle is mine, says the Lord. It's not your battle. And I will make this crystal clear to you by doing all the fighting for you in this instance. You know, at other times, the Lord in different situations and battles, He does involve His people in the fighting, and he, he goes with them in the battle. He fights alongside of them in the battle. He fights ahead of them in the battle. But here the Lord wants to make a point, and He wants to make it as clear as a bell. I will go out ahead of you, and you won't even have to lift a finger, Jehoshaphat. You won't have to strike one blow with the sword. You won't have to shoot one arrow from your bow. You won't have to shed one drop of blood. I will fight your fight because it's my fight, and I will win the victory completely, totally on my own. And as soon as Jehoshaphat hears that, what does he do? Verse 18, he falls down 
and he worships. That's all you can do, right? That's the appropriate response. You fall down and worship when the Lord says, I'm going to fight for you. The Levites, they first fall down, then they stand up, but they only stand up to praise God in a loud voice we read. So what we have here in this destruction of these, these three armies is, is a microcosm. It's a little demonstration of what God does in that overall larger battle against Satan, his demons, and all unbelievers among humans, that, that, that cosmic battle. And that's this point that it is God and God alone who obtains the victory. God goes out to fight, and in the end, there is not an enemy standing. Isn't that exactly what the Lord God would do later in the Messiah Himself? And isn't that what He's going to do at the end of time? In the middle of time, the Father had sent His Son to fight our fight by going to the cross in our place. The cross was the location of the battle. And Jesus went to the cross alone. No disciples, no friends, no supporting army. He went alone. And though Satan thought for sure he was going to crush the seed of the woman that day, turns out that in the very act of his suffering and dying, the seed of the woman who's Jesus, the seed of the woman crushed the head of the Satan, the serpent, and all God's children in that instant were saved. Salvation really and truly is of the Lord alone. Did you notice, brothers and sisters, when the fighting in this particular battle of our text, when it actually got underway, it's mentioned in verse 22, it says there, and when they, that would be the, the Levites, when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon. When they began to sing to the Lord, the Lord started to fight. Kind of reminds you of Jericho, doesn't it? The Lord sent the army of Israel to march around the city of Jericho seven times, trumpets blaring, and then at a certain moment they were to shout to the Lord, and at that moment the Lord knocked the walls down flat, and Jericho was taken. Jehoshaphat and Judah's biggest weapon against this, this incredible horde of invaders, their biggest weapon was to pray and sing and praise to the Lord. And then God went out to work as He had promised. Brothers and sisters, this is your God still today. He won at Jericho. He did overwhelm at the ascent of Ziz outside of En Gedi, and He totally crushed it at Golgotha. What will He not do in your battles? If your enemies are in fact God's enemies, and your fight is God's fight, call upon Him, sing out to Him, and watch Him fight your fight. For the blessings which God has in store for you and for me, 
and all His people are enormous. And they are also themselves overwhelming, these blessings. We should take that home with us too this morning. From the close, closing verses of our text, the entire nation of Judah comes to the battlefield. All they see are dead people everywhere. They see plunder and spoil, and they start gathering it in. It says in verse 25 that they carried and they carried and they carried the, 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 the plunder until they could carry no more. Imagine that. A day earlier, they had been scared silly. Now, there's so much spoil from a battle they didn't fight, they can't even carry it all. And when the people realized all this, they, they blessed the Lord, it says. That means they praised Him. That's why the valley where this horde had fallen was renamed the Valley of Barakah, the valley, which means the valley of blessing. The Lord turned the valley of tears, which was what it would have been, into a valley of blessing. Blessing had come to the people in this total victory of God and in all the plunder, and so they turned around and they blessed their God with their voices. It makes you think of all the plunder that the Egyptians had to hand over to the Israelites before they left Egypt. And it's a reminder to us that our God truly is almighty. And He intends to bless us with all manner of blessings, physical and spiritual. About the physical, Jesus Himself said, Matthew 5, the meek shall inherit the earth. The earth is for the meek, the arrogant, the unbelieving, the rebellious will not enjoy the new earth, but the meek will. Those who come to me empty-handed, said the Lord Jesus on another occasion, will go away satisfied and full. And about the spiritual blessings, Paul writes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. Let's name a few. Forgiveness. Righteousness. Accredited to our accounts. Holiness. Fellowship with Father, Son, and Spirit. Those are just a few of the spiritual blessings. Blessings really beyond compare and beyond measure. So, brothers and sisters, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The battle truly belongs to the Lord. And so do you. Amen.